This is the Bible Book Club. And we're in Deuteronomy. Welcome Welcome to to the club. Last episode in chapters 12 and 13, Moses went back to the future. Mm-hmm. He did a little review of the fundamentals of the faith, starting with the first and second commandment. And then the Israelites had been rather isolated in their camp of two million. So they're going to spread out. Moses is giving them the glimpse of the future. They're going to spread out on the promised land and they're going to be exposed to all kinds of Canaanite practices that could really lead them astray. So Moses is kind of coaching them on what to expect when they enter their new home and how to remain faithful to one God and to worship at one place. Exactly. And we covered the first two commandments last week. This week, we're still in the just do it sermon, but it's just do it, obey the third commandment, which is Exodus 20, verse seven. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Chapter 14. The big message here is Israel, you are a treasured possession of the one true God. Therefore, be set apart and do not dishonor this one true God. Chapter 14. You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Moses goes from warning about rejecting Canaanite gods in the last chapter to rejecting Canaanite ways in this chapter. The Israelites are to be different, set apart in what they do, in the food they eat, and in the way they treat each other. The world is to identify the Israelites with God as his children. The implication of their actions will reflect on God and God's name. The practices that follow are not holy themselves, but were intended by God to behaviorally set Israel apart from Canaan and other pagan nations around them. So first of all, be set apart in how you mourn. Mourning itself was not discouraged, but expressing grief by shaving or cutting was. The practice of cutting was a part of many pagan religions, including the Canaanite fertility cult that worshipped Baal. The prophets of Baal cut themselves as a means of inciting Baal to take action. I know this sounds really weird, but First Kings 18 is an example of this. Elijah, the prophet, challenged the followers of Baal to a face-off with God to see who could end a drought. Could Baal end it or God? And in verse 27, it says this. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely Baal is a god. Perhaps Baal is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom, until their blood flowed. So Elijah's kind of taunting them, like, come on, where's your God? Shout louder, call him more. And they're cutting themselves, as was their culture, to incite their God. If the Israelites practiced a ritual that was associated with the name of Canaanite gods, they would be profaning the name of their God and breaking the third commandment. Well, I just want to say that this is one of the reasons that I love studying the Bible with you, Susan, because 
normally I would have read that verse and just thought, well, that's a really weird thing for him weird to say. Thing, yeah. Without the context of knowing that that cutting thing is about the worship of their gods. It was a cultural thing that we didn't understand. But yeah, it was really referring, you know, kind of that idol worship commandment too. Next, be set apart in the food you eat. Verse three, do not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. However, of those that chew the cud or that have a divided hoof, you may not eat the camel, the rabbit, or the hurax. Although they chew the cud, they do not have a divided hoof. They are ceremonially unclean for you. The pig is also unclean, although it has a divided hoof. It does not chew the cud. You are not to eat their meat or touch their carcasses. Of all the creatures living in the water, you may eat any that has fins and scales, but anything that does not have fins and scales, you may not eat. For you, it is unclean. You may eat any clean bird, but these you may not eat. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, the black kite, any kind of falcon, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, the osprey, the cormorant, the stork, or any kind of heron, the hoop, and the bat. All flying insects are unclean to you. Do not eat them. But any winged creature that is clean, you may eat. Do not eat anything you find already dead. You may give it to the foreigner residing in any of your towns, and they may eat it, or you may sell it to any other foreigner. But you are a people holy to the Lord. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Moses mentions all the food laws from Leviticus 11, season three. Now, the last law about cooking a goat in its mother's milk from is also from Exodus and is the most peculiar. So let's let me start there. Apparently, the Egyptians had a superstitious practice of cooking a goat in its mother's milk and sprinkling the broth as a magical charm on their gardens. They thought this made their fields more productive in the next season. It was a practice that God did not want the Israelites to repeat because it just was like, you know, hocus pocus. So much of what God dictates to the Israelites is the undoing of bad habits from surrounding cultures. This law also links the end of the food narrative to the beginning about cutting yourselves in the morning for the dead. So we started with cutting, you know, shaving their heads and cutting, and we're ending with this kind of goat thing. So let me explain. The practice of cutting or bathing oneself in one's own blood at the beginning of the chapter is linked to the cooking of a baby's goat in its mother's milk. The theme here is that both cross the boundaries between life and death. In one, a person sheds their own lifeblood over the death of another. They're mourning that person. In the other, the life-giving milk, the mother's milk, is used in the baby goat's death. In the same way, this crossing over thing is an issue for God. And we don't understand it all, but there are theories for why some animals were prohibited or some animals were unclean. Some food laws protected Israel from disease. For example, pigs spread trichinosis. 
and vultures eat carcasses of diseased animals. But this does not explain all the animals that are said to be unclean. Jacob Milgram, an American Jewish Bible scholar and a rabbi, believed that the restrictions limited the slaughter of animals that were needed for labor, such as camels or horses. You know, like, don't eat them because we need them for other things. Mary Douglas proposed that categories of pure and impure animals could be tied to order in creation. Holiness meant keeping distinct the categories of creation. Those animals that crossed the boundaries of water, air, and earth were out of place and were therefore unclean. For example, insects that fly like birds, but also walked on four legs like animals, were an abomination in Leviticus 11.20. Even today, many believe that it is best not to eat some of these prohibited animals. For example, in our culture, we don't eat roaches and rats because they are considered dirty scavengers. But in fact, they are edible. Some we don't eat because we love them like horses. We don't eat horses today, even though they're edible, because we just love horses. We think of them like dogs. When I went to Mexico, every single restaurant was serving crickets. Yeah. Yeah. Some people like bugs. I'm not very adventurous, so I did not try it. In China, they do too. Remember the theme for Leviticus was holiness. God said, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. God created purity laws to set Israel apart as holy, a nation that represents God to the world. The motivation for Israel to obey was to be holy out of love and devotion to God. Today, we live under the new covenant. The food laws of the Old Testament serve to separate and make holy the Israelites from other nations. Today, through Christ, there is no separation of God's people by nation or by anything else. In Mark 7.14, Jesus said this about the new law, which has a new focus, the heart, not the stomach. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly— All these evils come from inside and defile a person. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, the focus is what comes out of the heart, not what goes into the stomach. God wants us to obey, to be holy, out of love and devotion to Him. It is your heart that God wants, not your diet. The next thing Moses spells out is be set apart by how you give to the Lord. 
in your tithing. Verse 22, be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe, because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you to go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use this silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the ties of that year's produce and store it in your town so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance on their own and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. And so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. The Israelites are commanded to tithe 10%. This ability to give out of abundance would be a sign to them of God's provision. It could only be given at the tabernacle where they will worship God in thanks. Every third year, the tithe was to go to provide for the Levites in their community and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows. The generosity and principles laid out in God's commands made Israel a nation like no other at the time. And that set them apart. And that is what made them an honor to God's name. And that third commandment says specifically, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. So if they are going to be God's people and say that God is their God, then they have to honor him or they're misusing his name. They're saying they're God's people when they're not acting like God's people. Now note, we too are to be set apart or different than our culture. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, we better act differently than the culture. For we also are a treasured possession, children of God, heirs according to the promise. And we have to act that way. Paul says it this way. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Just do it. Obey the fourth commandment is next. Exodus 20 verse 8 says this. This is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. The Sabbath commandment or the Sabbath day or the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee or the super Sabbath was an act of God's grace to the people. In Leviticus 25 season 3 episode 14, Moses details all the special Sabbath days. Here, Moses specifically addresses details of the Sabbath year, also called the sabbatical year or Sabbath of the land or year of release. 
This year occurred every seven years compared to the year of Jubilee, which occurred after the seventh of seven years in the 50th year. Okay, I know that's a lot, but the Sabbath year, and it is a year of rest. So understand that. The Sabbath year laws provided rest for the land and a return of property to those who had fallen on hard times. This was a nation of related tribes and families, and they were to be set apart for the world to see their grace and forgiveness with each other and their trust in God to provide when they rest on the Sabbath day and when they rest in the Sabbath year. I would love a Sabbath year. I think all of us would. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine having a whole year off of work just to kind of like think about God and rest and, you know, prepare for the next seven years? I don't know. You think you'd get bored? No, no, I do not think I get bored. I think I would get a lot done and I'd feel really <laughs> that's good. that's not what it's for. <laughs> exactly. No, I think it would be really good. Uh, so these are. this is a law that he had, um, these Sabbaths. And in chapter 15, we're going to look at how God wants them to be set apart and how they treat others related to the Sabbath year. He, God wants them to be generous. So first, we're going to talk about regarding debts in the Sabbath year. Every seven years, the land was released from the burden of being plowed. Like I said, the land gets a rest. And in the same way, the people were released from the burden of debt. Chapter 15. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan that they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today, for the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised. And you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. Okay, as a finance major, I have to tell you, this whole thing boggled my mind, but we covered it in past seasons. And you have to know when they lent. So remember, the tribes received the property and the property was allocated by family. And so if a family became in trouble, they could lease their property or and receive money for it and invest that money in seed and kind of maybe, you know, do part of the property. But there were so many ways that they did this when they um, borrowed money. It was based on how many years were left until this seventh year, because everybody knew this family was going to get this property back and they could start over. It, it was an amazing economy and such an economy we don't have like this today because it's based on, you know, um, a nation of a family, you know, where they really cared for each other. I wish we could do this in real life because they always took care of their poor. Um, so we're going to continue. There were other ways that they could do this. 
but it really must have been an incredible example to the cultures around them. Okay, here's the law on regarding regarding the poor in the Sabbath year. And they were, again, to be generous. Verse 7, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near so that you do not show ill toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So Moses was a little concerned about people who would um, need money as the seventh year approaches and they knew there wasn't much time left before they had to get before they would get their land back. So at all times, even in the seventh year, as it was approaching, they would have to cancel the debt without repayment. The Israelites were still to be generous and help one another out financially. There was an acceptance that certain families own the land. The land was always going to go back. So nobody was really going to get super rich. Um, you could, as a, a tribe or a family, acquire more land. Uh, there were different ways that that could happen. But there was this returning of the land most of the time that kept them all kind of equal in a way and prevented that um, greed. Okay, here we have more rules on regarding the treatment of slaves in the Sabbath year. Verse 12. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I gave you this command today. But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your female servant. Do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free because their service to you these six years has been worth twice as much as that of a hired hand. And the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. So poverty can lead to one becoming an indentured servant. If a person, you know, had land and had borrowed money against that land and still couldn't pay the loan back, then they could provide a person in their family, usually the head of the household, to work off that loan. Like, okay, I can't pay the loan back, so I'm going to come work for you for free. The Sabbath year law required that the servants be released in the seventh year. In other words, you had to figure out how much that employee was worth and you'd pay them what they were worth for those six years, knowing that in the seventh year, they'd go free. And when you did set them free, you were supposed to be happy for them. Hey, you worked off your loan and it's that year where everybody gets their land back and I'm going to give you stuff when you go. I'm not going to just like turn you out like drat. I have to let him go free. Um, if the master was kind and their presence in the master's home brought them comfort and security, they could choose to stay permanently. And I'm sure there were some um 
families and and households that were just so good at managing their property and were so great that people wanted to graft into it and they would choose to stay. Uh, But this was a stark, this whole method of an economy was a stark contrast to the slavery that the Israelites had suffered in Egypt. And treating needy people with compassion and justice was revolutionary in this age. And it set them apart. It gave them a testimony to the other nations. And that's what God was doing. He was showing that if you love God and honor me and trust me about the land and your provision in the land, guess what? Everyone's going to be blessed and do well. And that's why everybody should believe in God. All right. Next, we have be set apart in your gratitude to God. And this concerns the firstborn animals being the Lord's. Verse 19, set apart. For the Lord your God, every firstborn male of your herds and flocks, do not put the firstborn of your cows to work and do not shear the firstborn of your sheep. Each year, you and your family are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose. If an animal has a defect, is lame or blind, or has any serious flaw, you must not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You are to eat it in your towns. Both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat it as if it were a gazelle or deer. You must not eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. The law of the firstborn was originally given to Israel in Exodus 13 during the Passover. At the first Passover in Egypt, God spared the firstborn sons of Israel as he passed over Egypt. And he didn't spare the firstborn Egyptian sons. Therefore, the firstborn males of every herd or flock belong to the Lord. It's a reminder to them. And they are to be sacrificed at the tabernacle, at that one place of God's choosing, as a fellowship offering of thanks. They are not to be sacrificed in their communities. But like he said again, in the communities, they can sacrifice those who aren't perfect or unblemished or firstborn, um, just like they would a wild animal, a gazelle or deer. All right, moving on to chapter 16. Moses continues with how the Israelites are to honor God with other holy days other than that sabbatical year, sabbatical seventh year we talked about. These include the Passover, the Festival of Weeks, and the Festival of Tabernacles. These three feasts are all pilgrim feasts where the people must appear before the Lord three times a year at the tabernacle. We will put a complete chart of all the feasts and festivals that our great graphic designer did for us during season three um, in Leviticus in the show notes. It includes the festival, its Hebrew name, the Bible references, its significance, and facts and events that happened on these holidays. So you can check that out in the show notes. The first one, the first festival we're going to cover is the Passover. Chapter 16, observe the month of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in the month of Aviv, he brought you out of Egypt by night. Sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God, an animal from your flock or herd at the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Let no yeast be found in your possession in all your land for seven days. Do not let any of the meat you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain until morning. You must not sacrifice the Passover in any town the Lord your God gives you, except the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. 
time. There you must sacrifice the Passover in the evening when the sun goes down on the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. Roast it and eat it at the place the Lord will choose. Then in the morning, return to your tents. For six days, eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day, hold an assembly to the Lord your God and do no work. The original Passover in Exodus 12 took place in the homes of the Israelites in Egypt. But when they get to the promised land, God is telling them that they have to celebrate this at the tabernacle altogether. This is the first of the three feasts they have to make a pilgrimage about. To remember that night that God delivered them from Pharaoh, they are to celebrate as a nation every single year, no matter where that tabernacle is. Passover is still celebrated today by Jews all over the world with unleavened bread called matzah in homes where they remember what happened years ago in Egypt. They're kind of like little crackers. They're almost like um, saltine crackers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's really cool. Yeah. Um, because they tell the story. Each each food element has like a different part of the story. All right. The Festival of Weeks. In verse 9, count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle in the standing grain. Then celebrate the Festival of Weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows living among you, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these decrees. The Festival of Weeks was a celebration of thankfulness for the Lord's provision of the first of the harvest of wheat. So this is in the beginning of the harvest. It involved a free will offering and a fellowship meal for everyone. Foreigners and the fatherless are again mentioned. The Israelites were to demonstrate compassion to those in difficult circumstances and thankfulness that God had redeemed them from slavery. It was during this celebration, years later, after the resurrection of Christ, when many Israelites were in Jerusalem for this festival that the Pentecost occurred. Paul tells that story in Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? So this is so cool. Chapter two of Acts continues, reporting that the Lord daily added to the number of those being saved. 
Why would God choose the festival of weeks when everyone's in Jerusalem to have the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit come? Well, because it was the beginning of the harvest, not just of the harvest of wheat, what they had come to celebrate, but the harvest of people. And these people were being harvested from all over the area and they would continue to be harvested. Um, But it was a harvest of people, not just of food. It's a cool picture. Well, that puts it in a much different perspective, knowing that it was about the harvest and Mm -hmm. the parallel between it being a harvest of people. That's a Bible bender for me for sure. here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The Festival of the Tabernacles. Verse 13. Celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles for seven days after you've gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your festival. You, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. All right, this was the third festival that they were to make a pilgrimage. And this one is at the end of the harvest. This celebration, also called the Feast of Booths, which booths are tents or huts, took place when the harvest was complete. In Leviticus, Moses outlines that the purpose of living in the booths for seven days was to remind the Israelite descendants of how their ancestors had lived during the exodus from Egypt. The seven-day festival and rest from the burden of work are also a joyful reminder of God's provision. I love all these built-in vacations. I don't care if you had to go to Israel every time. It's still a vacation. You get to be with your people and camp out. I think it would have been great. Verse 16, three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. Three times a year, the Israelites are to appear before the Lord at the tabernacle, which one day will be the temple after Solomon builds it. They are to bring a gift to the Lord each time. And each of these feasts is a reminder of the holy rhythm of life in their year. Their new life that they are going to have in the promised land where God will provide food and rest in sevens on the seventh day of each week in annual festivals celebrated for seven days and in the seventh year. Because when God created the world, he did it in six days and he rested on the seventh. The promised land is a step closer to the Garden of Eden where they will get the rest they never had in Egypt, where God will provide for them as he did in the garden if they will just trust and obey. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.